Actually, we'll begin in chapter 31 and move into chapter 32. Deuteronomy 31, look at verse 19. Now therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. Verse 22. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. That's what I call inspiration right there. Verse 30. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. And Father, I pray as we open up the words of this song that you will touch our hearts. Lord, there's a, a way that music does that, a way that lyric reaches in and, and gets embedded, Lord, and I pray for that as we read through this, not only this morning, but Wednesday night, next Sunday as well, as we pour over the words of the song within this chapter. I just pray for your blessing, Lord, the blessing that makes truly rich, the blessing you bestow, that you offer, that you want to give. Lord, we come as willing and happy recipients. We're like children on Christmas morning saying, yeah, yeah, give it to us, Lord. Give us your word. Give us the truth. And give us ears not only to hear your word, but to do it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tis the season to be jolly. And in many of our families, we have kind of a soundtrack that comes with Christmas. I don't know about you, but we have, I mean, it just starts playing. I think I mentioned this last week. You know, the, with the last bite of Thanksgiving, the music begins. And, and we have a little a Bluetooth speaker in the house. And, and pretty much every day, at some point during the day, Christmas music is, is playing in the background of, of our lives. Let me just see how well you know the next line of these songs. So I'll start and you answer me. Okay, this is a little call and response. It's not call and response worship. It's just a quiz. Okay, here we go. Ready? Dashing through the snow. Wow. I'll tell you what, that horse is done. I'm dreaming. Good, all right. Some of you are saying good. Come, they told me. I just wanted to see if you'd do it. Some of you have never said parumpa-pum-pum in your lives. That's beautiful. I love it. Hark the herald angels sing. Amen. Amen. Even the phrase, tis the season, comes right out of deck the halls. Because words set to song are powerful in our lives. They're a powerful source of memory. The tune comes into our heads, and we start singing the words. There are some, you know those, those uh, what do they call those, earworms? The songs that get into your head and won't leave, and all day long they drive you insane over and over. One of my favorites for my wife, Cheryl, she's actually watching at home right now, so I want to sing this for her, is Jimmy Crackcorn, and I don't care. <laughs> it's going to be in her head all day, all day long. But you know what? That's part of why the Bible is full of song. 
not just the Psalms, the hymns, the prophetic and the spiritual songs. The Bible's filled with songs because the Lord knows songs open our hearts and let the words filter in. And the words get stuck there in our brains, in our minds, and make their way into our hearts. Psalm 33 verse 1 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. I like that. Man, if you're having an ugly day, sing praise. It'll clean you up. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy because when you praise the Lord, it gets in. It's an interesting dynamic because you're singing out, but the truth is getting in. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another, how, Paul, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Paul says, use it for instruction. Sing the verses, sing the teaching, sing the truth, and it will get in. That's what the song of Moses is all about. By the way, it's a teaching song. You may read through the words of chapter 32 and go, I can't find the rhyme or the meter. Well, you're not Hebrew. If you are, you may still have trouble finding the rhyme and the meter, but the song is the same nonetheless. We hear the music and the words filter in. Remember Schoolhouse Rock? Any of you? Math, grammar, science, civics, all set to music. I remember it vividly between surping down my bowl of Apple Jacks and watching the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show, I had no idea I was learning stuff. I was being edumacated as I sat there on Saturday mornings, schoolhouse rock. But this instruction, it's not just instruction, how-tos, what-to, you know, education. It's more serious. It's, it's more like, it's like country music in a way. Um, you know, country, it's about losing everything, <laughs> country songs. Um, okay, I'll, I'll tell it to you. What do you get when you play a country song backward? You get your wife back, you get your job back, you get your dog back. All kind of comes back to you. But more even serious than the sometimes bummer heartbreak songs of country music, this song is, it's a song of judgment. It's a song of judgment. God's judgment of Israel, and he says, Moses, write it as a song and teach it to them. Now, why, why would he do that? It's very interesting to learn. A commentator named McConville said, the structure of the song partially resembles the well-known ancient Near East lawsuit pattern. That is an overlord's accusation that a vassal has infringed on the conditions of the treaty between them. Amazing. You might want to jot these down real quickly. Seven things to note about the flow of this song. First, it begins with an appeal to witness. Now, that would happen in these ancient Near East lawsuits. You begin with an appeal to witnesses. Verses 1 through 3 does that. And then it's followed by an accusation. Verses 4 through 9. I'll repeat this. An account of the overlord's goodwill. Verses 10 through 14. And then an attestation of the broken covenant, verses 15 through 18. And number five, an announcement of punishment, 
verses 19 through 25. Now, I said there are seven things. I'll give you the other two in just a second. But again, first, an appeal to the witnesses, calling on witnesses, verses 1 through 3, an accusation, verses 4 through 9, an account of the overlord's goodwill, verses 10 through 14, an attestation of the broken covenant, verses 15 through 18, in this psalm, or in this song, and finally, an announcement of punishment, which we will read in verses 19 through 25. And you can use that to outline as you go through. Again, this is no Christmas carol or schoolhouse rock or country ballad. This song of Moses is the Lord's judgment of his people. And the lyrics are at times severe. However, unlike ancient lawsuits, which were often sung, which I find interesting anyway, other than or unlike these lawsuits, this song leaves the pattern and goes where no other lawsuit has gone before. This song goes to number six, the abandonment of judgment. The abandonment of judgment. That's going to be verses 26 through 35. All of a sudden, when judgment looks stark, severe, and the whole thing is over, God abandons judgment for grace. It's amazing. His mercy. Why? Because Israel's foolish. God in this song will abandon judgment because of the foolishness of Israel, which shows us God's mercy. As Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. It's foolishness. They don't get it. They're completely clueless. They really think they're doing the right thing here by killing me, Jesus says. They don't know. So forgive them, Father. And that is a part. By the way, it speaks to the heart of God, the foolishness of man. It's what I believe feeds into God's mercy. God is merciful because man is foolish. God's mercy. So there's an abandonment of just judgment. And then finally, the song ends, verses 36 through 43, with the advancement of grace, which is greater than mercy. The advancement of grace, which will save God's people and at the same time vindicate God's character. Isn't that a marvelous thing? That his abandonment of justice, it shows God's mercy, acknowledging Israel's foolishness. And then with the advancement of grace, it saves God's people and vindicates his very nature, his character as God of grace. Well, with all that in mind, let's, let's get into the song. Verse 1 of chapter 32 Moses begins to sing, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth, the appeal to the witnesses. He again appeals now to heaven and to earth, as he did in chapter 4, verse 26, as he did in chapter 30, verse 19. We saw that last week. He appeals to the heavens and the earth, because when you're talking about God, where else are you going to go to appeal? When the problem is with mankind, you got to appeal to someone as a witness. Well, the heavens and the earth are witnesses throughout all history of the foolishness of humanity and specifically here of the people of Israel. We hear the same kind of appeal to heaven and to earth uh, scattered throughout the Psalms and the prophets. You'll hear it in Psalm 50, verse 4. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 6, verse 19. Hear, O earth. Behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. The heavens and the earth are witness to our folly. They are witness to our sin. No one's going to be able to stand before the Lord and hide it. Say, ah, you know, aside from that, it's all good, it's all good, Lord. Yeah, well, the heavens and the earth saw exactly what you did not to mention the Lord himself. Verse 2, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. Now that sings. And you could put that into a song, you could put that into a pop song today and it would sing. It's beautiful. But notice the way he says this. While this is, yes, a song of judgment, it doesn't pound like a thunderstorm or strike like lightning. It drops like a gentle rain. It distills like the morning dew. How does the morning dew distill? Well, dew doesn't do damage. <laughs> dew just kind of soaks the ground. I remember being in Yosemite. I've shared stories from this one camping trip a few times over the years. But man, this one time, me and my friends were camping in Yosemite. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. Southern California boys decide we're going to go rough it. And boy, we ended up roughing it because we were idiots. But I remember one, one night we decided, hey, let's, let's sleep out by the campfire outside the tent. We got out there. And of course, I had, the, I had a top-notch sleeping bag. I bought it at Sears. It was all cotton. It's <laughs> great for the great outdoors. And in the morning when I woke up, I was in a, a bag of soak. <laughs> I mean, the whole ground, it was all the dew. It was soaked through the bag. I never felt it during the night. It didn't wake me up. It didn't pound on me. I just woke up soaking wet. Well, that's what the dew does. And that's what he prays. That's what he sings that this song will do, that it won't pound the people but that it will slowly soak in and saturate. And ultimately, what else does do does, does do do? <laughs> what do you do with do? I don't know. Um, do also will refresh. It will satiate. The dew settles on the ground and it quenches thirst. Or as implied here in the psalm or in the song, let my speech distill as the dew. Let it come and quench the soul and satisfy the spirit and take away the thirst. See, that's what the word does. That's the marvelous thing about the entire word of God is it rarely pounds people into submission. Most often it soaks in. Sometimes it takes a long time to do it. Which is why keep bringing that grumbler with you to church. Keep, I looked at Jackie, I didn't mean Tom. Keep bringing, <laughs> keep bringing the person for whom you think there's no listening. They're not hearing it. They're not getting it. They're just here. They're just, you know, here to placate me. Good. Let them placate you for a while because the teaching is distilling like the dew. It's getting in. You can't help it. 
it soaks in. That's what the Word does. Isaiah 55, 10, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my Word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's God's Word. I think snow is another beautiful picture of how it comes down. It doesn't pound it's not hammering. It comes down, snow, a gentle spring rain, the dew, and it soaks in. And by the way, for followers of Jesus, for believers, the word for this sweet saturation, this ongoing quenching is sanctification. That the word continues to drop like dew on our hearts and on our souls. And so Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 8. And of course, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her. How, Paul? By the washing of the water with the word. So let my speech distill like drops of dew, uh, droplets on the fresh grass and showers on the herb. It's beautiful. Verse 3, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just a God of faithfulness without injustice, righteousness, and upright is he. Speaking of the Lord, five times in this song, five times we hear a specific word. Yahweh is called Sir. Five times he's referred to as Sir in the song, not S-I-R actually, but if you're making a, a Hebrew transliteration, it would be S-U-R, sur, which means a massive rock face. The rock, the rock. It's not a country song after all. It's a rock song. And he's singing about the rock, this massive, awesome rock. He does it in verse 4, the rock. He does it again down in verse 15, where he sings, uh, at the end of verse 15, you scorned the rock of your salvation. Verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you. Down in verse 30, unless their rock had sold them. Verse 31, indeed their rock is not like our rock. Speaks of the rock again and again. And there are a couple other implicit references to the rock here as well that I'll probably come back and talk about next week. But Bible students, what is the Greek equivalent for the word rock, sir, in Hebrew? What's the Greek word for rock? It's Petra. Petra. Make sure you know that. Know the difference between Petra and Petros. Petra is that massive rock, a huge rock. You might see a rocky cliff or a rock face. Petra, that's the rock. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 15, who do you say that I am? Which is the consummate question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Petros. Pebble. Petros. Rocky. Little rock. And upon this rock, Petra, this massive rock, I will build my church. Peter's Petros, but his faith is a rock. His statement, the declaration of Jesus as Messiah, that's a rock. Peter's just a pebble. 
But he spoke of the rock and Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And Paul later on will tell us, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, that in the wilderness our fathers were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. The rock is Jesus Christ. Not Dwayne Johnson. Jesus Christ is the rock. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2 verse 6, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So he begins to describe the rock in verses 3 and 4, and listen to the lyrics that he uses to describe the rock, six qualities to this rock. Six qualities. He's perfect, meaning completely spotless. He's just. Mishpat is the word, meaning absolutely fair. He is God of faithfulness. I'm going to tell you this in the Hebrew because it's another name of God that you probably haven't heard or don't hear real often. El Emunah. El Emunah. Try saying that with me. El Emunah. El Emunah is another name for God, God of faithfulness. God of faithfulness. Moses says, without injustice, which is not perverse, not twisted. So he, he talks about that he's righteous. The very next word is righteous, which is absolutely sinless according to moral law. And before that, without injustice. So he doesn't take the law and bend it or twist it or look for loopholes. He's perfect. Perfect, just, God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous. And finally, Moses says, upright is he. Upright is Yasar, and it simply means he's straight. He's level. He's a stand-up God. He is true. And this describes the God that we believe and worship and serve and follow and love. Listen, any time in the Bible... You see the, the name of God mentioned and qualities listed, learn the qualities. Learn the qualities. How does he describe himself? How is he described by others in the scriptures? Why is that so important? Because this is who God is. And this is the filter through which we need to look when we see God's actions and people miss this. If you start thinking God is hateful, you're going to assume the things he does are hateful things. But if you start knowing, understanding God is good, then that will be the filter through which he acts, through the things he does. We look at the things he does in our lives. If things are a mess, if things are out of control, if things are horrible, we don't go, well, that's because that's who God is. No, as a follower of Jesus, I say he's good. And he works all things for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, even this seemingly bad thing, he can work for good because he is good. And Moses lays this out right at the beginning of, of this injunctive song because he wants the people to understand, look, first you need to know who he is. Then let's look at what he is going to do or what he has done. I've talked about this before. You look at the flood. If you look at the flood and assume that God is a distant, heartless, mean-spirited God, you would say, well, of course he'd flood the world and destroy people. He's just angry. That's what angry people do. But if you know that he's a God of grace, you understand he brought the flood for the salvation of mankind. Both after the flood, but also all of those who believed in God before the flood. If mankind had gone pure evil, 
there would have been no Savior to come into the world and no way that people like Seth could have gotten saved. God is a God of grace. So we see the God of grace and we apply that to the flood and we say, oh, we begin to understand by his nature what he's doing. You've got to keep that in mind. And here's why. Midweek, one of our fellowship came up to me and was talking about a family member who actually said, and it made me cringe. He actually said, we're having a debate about God, and and he said, I show more compassion to my children than your God ever does. I I, Turn to Romans chapter 2. Let me show you something. Romans chapter 2. If you don't understand the character of God, perfect, just, faithful, without injustice, righteous, upright, that's who he is. We know that, then suddenly we understand better what he's doing in this world and even in my life personally. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse. Now he's saying therefore, so you really got to go back and read all of chapter 1 to understand why he's saying that. But he has just laid out judgment of mankind and he's laid out the fact that God has handed us over to our dishonor, to our degradation, to our depravity. And and we should know better. And Paul has explained why. But now he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same thing. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God's the only one who's right in this. The rest of us are all messed up. We're all wrong. He's right. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? There are more character traits of God. Not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And I want to clarify something right there. The kindness of God leads you to repentance does not mean God is nice, therefore I repent. It means that God, out of his kindness, leads you to repentance. Do you see the difference? One is my will based on his nice behavior. The other is his will based on his character. He is inherently kind. Therefore, he is drawing you, drawing me to repentance because that's who he is. He's kindness. So the kindness of God is what compels him to draw us into repentance. But he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Therefore, There will be, well, he said, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil, the Jew first and also of the Greek. And he continues to go on. Now, Paul there is talking about those who judge others. Who are you to cast judgment on someone else when you look at the things that you've done? Tell you what, that that informs my older parenting now much more than it did when I was a young parent. What do you mean? Remembering the stupid things I did when I was a teenager. So when I look at my own kids as teenagers, I'm not quite as harsh because I remember doing the same dumb stuff. 
So it's a matter of now, how do I teach wisdom to help my son, my daughter, not continue to do the dumb things I did? But, but Paul's talking about people who judge other people. What about those with the brazen, impudent audacity to judge God? Think about that. We ought to be so thankful that God causes his word to drop like dew and not a hammer. Because a hammer is what we deserve. There's a line from a song Isaiah wrote down, a, a servant song of the Messiah, of Jesus. And it says, Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth judgment. There's the dew dropping. There's the snow falling. With gentleness and kindness, because that's who he is. And yet, and yet someone would say, I have more compassion for my children than your God ever does. And I think, how dare you judge God? Where do human beings get off thinking we have the right to look at God and say, how come you did this? Or why would you do that? Or who do you think you are bringing this into my life? Who do we think we are? God is perfect. Now, in stark contrast to Yahweh's character, verse 5, they have acted corruptly toward him. They're not his children because of their defect, but a perverse and crooked generation. Birth defects tend to come from corruption in the genes or the bloodline or, or somewhere, some interruption in the, in the natal development during the process of pregnancy. I know for years my mom labored over the, the delusion that she had a cup of coffee when she was pregnant and her son got a cleft lip. <laughs> it's genetic. But there are things that are in the bloodline that get passed along. And what Moses sings here is they're not his children because they're defective. If they were his children, they would not be defective. God is perfect. God is incorruptible. And he cannot produce corrupt, defective children. What does that tell you about being born again? If you are born again by the Spirit of God, guess what? You are not born to ongoing corruption and defection and, and, and problems. You are, you are born by the Spirit. There is a perfection process. And, and I still marvel about this, that, that I am born again and immediately seen as righteous before God by the blood of Jesus that cleanses and washes me. I am not defective anymore. I'm perfect and being made perfect, which is the sanctification process. Seen as perfect today, being made perfect so that when I'm in his presence, it's all right. No defective children. Verse 6, do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. How dare anyone, again, presume to judge the Lord? When verse 4 says, he's righteous and upright, and verse 5 says, they're perverse and crooked. How do we have the right to, to turn judgment on God? And, and I'll tell you, listen, when you talk to people who don't believe, turn them to his character. 
They will want to debate his actions. You've got to turn them to his character. You've got to understand who he, is, who he is first to understand why he did what he did. And when you understand who he is, when you look at Jesus, when you look at his sacrifice, when you look at his humility and his grace and his mercy, and then apply that to Jesus and how he lived his life, and then apply that to the God that we see, Yahweh, Jesus, in the Older Testament, oh, now I get it. Now this, un this makes sense because of who he really is. Make sure they understand that. Again, they're going to want to debate actions. Start with character. Start with who Jesus is. Verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you, which does put a weight of responsibility on fathers and elders. Those of us who have been around for a while should be able to tell our children what a gracious and merciful God he really is. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. This is just so cool. He set the boundaries of earth according to the number of the sons of Israel. Okay, what's the number of the sons of Israel? Any guesses? Twelve. 12, 12 sons of Israel. What's the number of the sons of Israel? 12, but that doesn't quite get us there. Think back to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. I'll just read it to you. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 12 sons, right? But listen, verse 5. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. 70. The number of the sons of Israel, 12 sons, but the number of the sons of Israel as a collective, as we begin Exodus in this whole redemption process, was 70. And that is significant. Because if you go back even further in Torah, what you discover in Genesis chapter 10, just note this, Genesis 10 verses 1 through 32 is what we call the table of nations. The table of nations is the most accurate genealogical list of people that we have in history. There is no genealogy that is more concise and accurate than the table of nations in the Bible, Genesis 10. Dr. William Albright says Genesis 10 stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without remote parallel. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. Here's what's fascinating. The table of nations lists exactly 70 nations. 70 nations. And so as Moses sings, he sets the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. Seventy sons of Israel going down into Egypt. Well, seventy nations set by the number of the sons of Israel. Those seventy nations would then settle in different regions with boundaries after the flood. The people of Ham, 30 nations. The people of Shem, 26 nations. And the people of Japheth, 14 nations, which adds up to 70. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. 
Paul says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Which is significant because setting all politics aside from what I read in the Bible, open border globalism is ungodly. Open border globalism that we see the globalists and the, and the, the, the elite pushing so hard for in the world today break down the boundaries, get rid of the borders, let's all live as one world, one world under a one world order. That's where the world's going. That's what the Bible said would happen. That's what is going to take place under the rule and the authority for a short time of a man we know is called the Antichrist. Globalism, that's the goal. And the Bible says that's not godly. See, the Lord established boundaries. According to the number of the sons of Israel, 70 nations, and they had their boundaries, and they were marked off as specific regions and locations. Open borders is not God's plan. Globalism is not God's plan. Compassion for the alien, yes. Concern for the foreigner and fair treatment, absolutely. Looking after the difficulties and the needs and caring for the immigrant, yes. That's a church issue. That is a church responsibility. But what the world powers are driving to, no. That is not the Creator's design, nor is it His will. Now, you might ask, why? Doesn't it seem like a good idea just to be Canamarexico? <laughs> Let's just all kind of be one thing, you know, one big conglomerate on the, on the you know, of this nation. Listen, God knows we need boundaries. So He even sets them up nationally. If we clump, if we globalize, we're just going to become the last Babel. And every nation in history that has either tried to rule the world or mesh into some global superpower, a singular global superpower, has fallen apart usually within two to three hundred years. Which is why I believe we see what's going on in our country right now. We're at that place. We're at a crossroads where the nation has to decide, will we be godly or will we be ungodly? And the push toward ungodliness is huge. Verse 9. For the Lord's portion now, he set the boundaries for the people, but the Lord's portion, verse 9, is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his, that is God's inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, verse 10. And there's something powerful that's beginning to be portrayed here in this circling of God like a great bird of prey in the sky. But hold that thought a second. If your Bible here says that he guarded him as the apple of his eye, that's not the translation. That's not the word. Oh, no, I got to get a new Bible. Just no, just notate this. The whole reason why we get this out of the King James, they, they took a, an English euphemism to express the thought. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye is what he said. Well, they said, well, let's say the apple of his eye because that means they're precious to him. 
That means they're important to him. So he guards them because he cares for them. But I think it's important to know that it is not about something precious. It's about God's attitude toward Israel. The pupil here, the word for pupil, ishon in the Hebrew, literally speaks of the blackness at the center of the eye. Why does Moses use this? He guards them as the pupil of his eye. Because in the human anatomy, the pupil of your eye is the one that you will most instinctually protect. The protective reflex of, of human beings is to protect the eye, even a loud noise. I was going to try it out. I didn't want to freak anybody out this morning. But, but if suddenly I'm just talking, we heard a loud explosion, you would all blink immediately and you wouldn't be able to help it. You would just... You know, it's like kids having to be trained, I remember this, to keep my eyes open when a baseball was flying at me at 900 miles an hour. Because kids instinctually will go like that. We want to protect. And that's what Moses is saying. The pupil, he guards them like the pupil of his eye. You come at someone's eye with your finger, that eye is going to be protected. You will fight to keep it safe. Psalm 17, verse 8 says, keep me as the apple of the eye. But it's not apple, it's pupil. Keep me as the pupil of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. We're talking about absolute protection on the part of God. Or Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 that says, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. But again, it's not apple, it's pupil. He who touches you, Israel, touches the, app, the, the pupil of God's eye, which is to say this, to poke at Israel is to poke God in the eye. It's that graphic a picture that is being portrayed here. By the way, did you hear last week? Jerusalem Post, December 2nd. The United Nations General Assembly, what I like to call the Useless Nations General Assembly, approved a resolution, 129 nations to 11 on Wednesday to disavow Jewish ties to the Temple Mount. It's the second time they've done this. They want to call it solely by the Muslim name Al-Haram Al-Sharif, even though the, the word Jerusalem isn't even mentioned once in the Quran. But the United Nations is all piling on saying, yeah, let's not call the Temple Mount the Temple Mount. Let's not talk about the truth. Let's call it Al-Haram Al-Sharif, the Muslim name. And the text, which is referred to as the Jerusalem Resolution, is part of a push by the Palestinian Authority and the Arab states across the UN system to rebrand Jerusalem's most holy site as an exclusively Islamic one. And again, they did this before. They did it in 2018 as well. The U.S. stood against it. Thankfully, this time, again, the United States opposed it along with 10 other names and 31 nations abstained from the vote. So there are still nations in the world going, I don't know that it's a good idea just to consider it a Muslim site, seeing as that's where the Jewish temple was, seeing that is the location of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But this is where our world's going. Idaho, just read this this morning. Do you know that there's one monument, um, one monument to Anne Frank in all of America? It sits in Idaho. And there's a tunnel that, that leads to it. And they found just this morning or yesterday morning uh, swastikas spray painted throughout the tunnel. Why? 
Why would someone do that? What is going on here? This is satanic stuff. And it is Satan and it is the world trying to poke at the eye of God. Well, guess what? God guards Israel like the pupil of his eye. And this generation of people, this, this genus, this people group Israel will not pass away before all these things take place. Guarded like the pupil of the eye. And verse 10, verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up his nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him and there was no foreign God with him. That's about as far as we're going to get this morning. But we're not done. We're not done. Think back now. The circling picture that we see in verse 10. He circled. He cared for Israel. And then it talks about like an eagle. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. And I think this is so fascinating. The word eagle there. I'm going to give you this. Note it down. It's nesher. N-E-S-H-E-R. Nesher. Nesher is the word for eagle, but it's a specific kind of bird. It is not the eagle that you and I see flying around here. It's not the bald eagle. The nesher is a Middle Eastern bird of prey. It's more vulture than eagle. Vulture or, or falcon, kind of a cross between a vulture, a falcon, and an eagle, and it's called the griffin vulture today, or, or some will call it the great vulture and that's the word nesher. And when you see eagle in the Hebrew scriptures, it's nesher. It speaks of the great vulture. So, so there are some things we can learn about God from the great vulture, which is used descriptively of him in the song. Number one, note this. The nesher builds her nest high up in remote rocky cliffs. High up, not, not at the top of trees like the bald eagle around here. But high up in remote cliffs, they're, they're very hard to even reach. There was an expedition several years ago, uh, unfortunately, to try and, try and go get the uh, great vulture's eggs. And they couldn't even reach the nests because of where they were on these rocky faces there in the Middle East. So they build up high and in remote places, listen to this, or you may want to note this or turn there and keep a finger there. Job chapter 39 Verse 27, the Lord is schooling Job, and he says, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Isn't it your command, verse 27, that the eagle, the nesher, mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges, up in a rocky crag, an inaccessible place. That's the nesher. That's the bird, that's the word where it says the eagle that stirs up its nest, the nesher, up in that remote rocky place. So you need to think about this. If the nesher, the, the eagle, is guarding her young, they're up in this rocky remote place, what are the young going to do outside the nest? If the nest is in a rocky crag, there's nowhere to go but down. So the young are kind of stuck. The vulture twins, we'll call them Natan and Nora Nesher. <laughs> Natan and Nora, the Nesher twins, had to rely 100% on their mother for food, for care, for protection. No other bird would swoop in there to help if mom wasn't there. Or in this case, the Lord, there is no other foreign god with him. 
The Lord alone guided him. Only the Lord helped Israel. There was no other. There can be no other, similar to the Nisher. Think about this, how God did it too. He raised the children of Israel in the wilderness. In the wilderness. He didn't meet them in the fatness of Egypt. He didn't feed them there in Goshen and, and care for them in Goshen and teach them his ways and bring Moses to live there in Goshen as the people would quietly under the, well, the protection really of Egypt, learn the ways and grow in the ways. Why did he wait until the, the wilderness to even bring the law? Bring the law to Goshen where we can comfortably study it in the evenings in our homes. No. The Lord sent them to a remote place a distant and rocky place, a terrible wilderness to teach them his word. Why? Because there they could rely on nobody but him, not even Egypt. Not even Egypt for the fields and the, and the watering and the army to protect them. And so they went into the wilderness. They got manna from heaven, right? Water from the rock. Without God's provision, the people in the wilderness would have starved to death. They would not have survived. This is God's pattern to take people out of their comfort zone and to teach them to rely on him. The church began the same way, began and was driven out of its relative ease in Jerusalem by a great and terrible persecution that would last 283 years from the start of the church. If you've been through our Revelation study, you've heard me say this before, that God chose to take his infant church, his fledgling, fledgling little baby, and drive her out of Jerusalem to the persecution of the world. What did that do? Grew the church. It made the church strong, and it caused the church to trust in Jesus for everything. That's what the Nasher does with her little nestlings, little Natan and Nora. In James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God may take you to a remote, a remote place. God may have you in the rocky crags. He does it because he's causing you to rely solely on him. The Nesher, second thing to note, these, these birds, they have Powerful, crystal clear vision. Listen to what God tells Job in Job 39, verse 29. From there he spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. So they have this amazing vision. And the rabbis actually point out that the word, the name, nesher, derives from the meaning of a word that means powerful sight. That they call this thing a nesher because it has powerful sight or vision. In fact, the Talmud, Talmud says, a vulture in Babylon can see a carcass in Judea. Speaking of the nesher. I've told you before, that's like me shopping with Cheryl. We would go into a mall. She would see a deal in a shop five stores down on the left, back rack. I'm like, how did you even see that? It, it was really somewhat supernatural. So you just, you know, hone in on that thing. But that's what the Nesher can do in Israel. Think about this again, Israel, as the pupil of God's eye. The great vulture is an awesome word for how God is watchful for his people. He's providential. His protective love of them. Psalm 33, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him 
on those who hope for his loving kindness or his grace to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And my friends, he has eyes for you. The Lord has eyes for you. Well, the Nesher, something else to note. Remote rocky places, strong vision. Thirdly, the Nesher has a sharp beak and strong taloned feet. And the Nesher, as a bird of prey, are viciously protective of their children. You do not mess with the Nesher kids. You know, Nat and Nora. You don't mess with them. The, the mighty Egyptian army got washed up when they tried to attack God's children. In the wilderness, the Amalekites wiped out. Sihon and Ug of the Amorites destroyed by his fierce protection. I love what Moses said in, in Exodus 14, 14. And this is a good one to set to your spiritual memory. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Isaiah 31, verse 5, like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver. He will pass over and rescue it. This is what the Nesher does. So it's, a, again, a, a beautiful picture, you know, a, a metaphorical picture of the Lord in this song. A fourth thing to note is the Nesher lives a long, long time. These, these birds are known to live decade after decade after decade. Do you want to live on? Maybe that's a question to consider. And maybe that's a question to ask people, especially when they're throwing out language like, I have more compassion for my kids than God does for anyone. Do you want to live? <laughs> so many people are stuck living for right now, only now, and then going out with a bang. Like this kid last week. Shooting up yet another school. Why? No one taught him about living forever. Parents obviously don't know about living forever. The family system has not been taught. Do you want to live on and on? Not in this broken down state, but with strength as of the youth. Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, who satisfy your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle, so that we, like the Nesher, have strength and vigor and long life. That's what God wants for you, wants for me. Not this life, long life, eternal life, forever life. That's what we're living for which then brings the morality and the love of life and the concern for life out of us now because we see this not as a temporal thing, but it's an eternal thing. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like Nesher's. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But listen, last thing on this bird for now. Number five. The Nesher is naturally slow to mature. <laughs> slow to develop. Mama has got to be patient. For without a mother's training, the hatchlings, they would. They would just die in the nest or they would fall out to their death. And so, so she stirs them up. She stirs them up. Mama begins to make the nest uncomfortable for the hatchlings 
And eventually, it's been seen that the Nesher will actually kick a little bird out of the nest. And down they go, yeah! <laughs> down the rocky cliff face, flapping furiously, out of control, not knowing what they're doing, completely immature. And then Mama will swoop down and literally catch them on her pinions and bring them back up to the nest, settle them in, and then kick them out again. And in this process, the mother matures the little nesher, the little baby bird. This is why, by the way, the Lord calls his people Israel to fight. Even in the wilderness, they had to fight. Even coming into the land now, God has given them the land as their inheritance, but they're going to have to take it. They're going to have to fight for it under Joshua and his leadership. They're going to have to grow and mature. They have to take the land so that they can later hold on to the land. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The Nesher, same word again. He did it then. By the way, he's going to do it again. Revelation 12.14, on the two wings of the great eagle, they were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Speaking of the last half of the tribulation, God's going to fly his people out again. We have no idea what that airlift will look like, but the allusion is to the nesher. It's the same protective, eagle-like uh, character trait of God with his people Israel. But until the little Nesher gets his or her wings, the mother's patient. She continues to stir the nest. She continues to stir up like an eagle, like a Nesher, verse 11, that stirs up its nest. The word stir up, Yair, means to awaken or rouse, to rouse the nest. Now listen, I'm going to give you an opinion, and there are others who completely disagree with me on that, on this, and that's okay. But I believe that the Lord right now is stirring the nest of the fat American church. He is stirring us out of our doldrums, out of our comfort, out of this is the way we've done it, and we're comfortable doing it this way, and we're fat, dumb, and happy just to be doing what we do and not worrying about it. And all these things taking place culturally, nationally, internationally, Mother bird stirring the nest. And this, what God's doing is to stir up an awakening in us. But, but here's where people disagree with me. I hope I'm wrong on this. I don't think we're going to see a great awakening again. I don't think we're going to see revival like we've seen in history again. We may. And I'm not saying don't pray for it. I'm not saying don't look for it, especially if God puts it on our hearts. But I do know that all true revival, all legitimate revival begins with repentance. In fact, that's the heart of revival is a people repenting and crying out to the Lord and recognizing our sinful nature before him and how desperately we need him. But I'm just not convinced there's going to be another great awakening. Some would say to me, well, it's your attitude that's going to keep it from happening. I'm not that powerful, folks. But I don't know if we're going to see another revival before Jesus comes. I think the next great awakening is when he awakens us in the rapture of the church. 
That's what I'm looking forward to. And the reason I feel this way, and I, I, I began thinking this years ago as we studied Revelation back in the barn days, Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus said, I know your deeds, talking to the church of Philadelphia, very much a last day's church, the, la the brightest of the last day's churches in the churches of the Revelation. And he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does that mean? You have a little power. You don't have great power. You don't have awesome power. You don't have the same kind of power, perhaps even that we've seen down through the ages. You don't have that. You have a little power, just a little strength. Now, granted, right now, today, you and I have his spirit, which is the greatest power. So indwelling you, indwelling me, living with me, we have this amazing, remarkable power, but we are somewhat like little uh, Nate and, and, and Nora Nesher. We're still fledgling. We still haven't totally flown yet. And we have this little power. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 11. But, but, personally, I believe rather than some impressive church revival, listen, we have what little power we need to await Jesus. We have what power we need to keep his word, to refuse the denial of his name, and to stand faithful to the end because you have kept the word of my perseverance, Jesus says. Revelation 3.10, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The tribulation is coming. The time of testing that will test the entire earth, we will not be here for it. I'm absolutely convinced of this. I think the Bible is clear about this. We have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we will be saved and we will go up and we will be raptured and caught up and taken out of this place because we have a little strength, a little power, just enough to hold fast and not deny and believe in him for who he is. He will call us out and we will go, but on earth, tribulation, on earth, there will be terror, on earth. Well, Job chapter 39, verse 30 says, his young ones also suck up blood and where the slain are, there he is is. He who? The Nesher. Where the slain are, that's where the great vulture goes. That's where he is. And Jesus tags this. Speaking of those who refuse the Lord and therefore miss the flight, the rapture of the church. Jesus says, Luke 17, 36, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And they said, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. The left body. To, to some, God is vicious. To some, God is harsh. He's uncaring. They think themselves victims to a bird of prey. And to these, I say this. Back in the song, look at verse 13. He made him, Israel, to ride on the high places of the earth. He ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock with the fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats with the finest of wheat and the blood of grapes. You drank wine. He sings it past tense, but he's talking about what's going to happen when they come into the land. He's talking future tense, but as though it happened. But, verse 15, still he's looking to the future, 
This is what's going to happen. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Don't say that to somebody. <laughs> Dude, you are so thick. <laughs> but this is what he's saying to Israel. This is what's going to happen, Jeshurun. And then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. I just want you to note this Jeshurun, Yeshurun. Yeshurun in the Hebrew, it is a, it's a, a term of endearment. It's an affectionate name that God has for Israel. Yeshurun means upright one. Upright one. It is only used by God for Israel in the Bible. Yeshurun. These are the ones you could say, these are the ones that God straightened out. Remember, he's upright, and so they will become upright. They will be straightened out as the Lord does this. Think about what he just described. What happened? When did Yeshurun forsake God? When it got easy. After they got into the land. When things settled down. It's not supposed to be easy. I don't know where we ever got the idea that life was supposed to be a life of ease. And when we think we no, no longer need God to fly, when we forsake the eagle wings of our Lord, he's going to stir us up to awaken us, to, to kick us, as it were, out of the nest, to teach us to fly, just like he did with Israel, Yeshurun. They are not, they in, in this song, are not an upright people, but he calls them my upright ones. Why? Because they will be. They will be. I want to leave you with the good news of this song. And it actually comes all the way from the book of Revelation, chapter 15, verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Last night, Christopher goes, Dad, the song of Moses, that's not really in the Bible, right? Does the Bible actually say the song of Moses? And I said, yeah, it does, actually. He's like, oh. Chris loves to be very right until he finds out he's wrong. <laughs> song of Moses isn't in the Bible. Yeah, it is, and we will sing it, I told him. He's like, what, what, what? They sang the song of Moses, the, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Listen, the, the, the prophecy is that Jew and Gentile, Christian and Jew together, singing praise to our God. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come before you. For you, your righteous acts have been revealed. There is coming a day, finally, when people who don't understand the character of God will see through his righteousness truly who he is. We right now can accept the biblical uh, character traits of the Lord and look at what he does and understand he's righteous. But there is a time coming when all the earth will see and know and understand everybody that his righteous acts have been revealed. The song of Moses. Now, when we studied Revelation, I talked about that the song of Moses may be actually the Song of the Red Sea, Exodus 15, verses 1 through 18. They sing the victory song. After they cross through the Red Sea, they get to the other side and they sing this song of praise. But a very compelling case can be made for the song of Moses being Deuteronomy 32. 
that this is the song that will be sung at that time, start to finish. Well, which one is it, Rick? I suggest you go ahead and learn both sets of lyrics. <laughs> so learn Exodus 15, verses 1 through 18. Learn Deuteronomy 32, the entire song of Moses, because, brothers and sisters, Jesus the Lamb will overcome and we will one day stand alongside saved Israel and we will be singing before him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for introducing us to the song and bringing it before us this morning. I pray now simply that your words would distill as the dew, that they will drop like a gentle spring rain, that our hearts will be saturated with the truth and that we will recognize in your relationship with Israel what your relationship with us is intended to be. Help us, Lord, not to grow sleek and thick and fat in our, in our relaxed faith. Father, I pray that we would have an edgy faith, a strong faith, a fighting faith, a determined faith, an enduring faith, Father. You have taught us over the history of the world and given us your word to do so that we would know how to stretch our wings, that we would be prepared to fly the moment you say, come up here. And I ask this for the church. Give us, Lord, what strength we need to see this through. And then, oh Lord, then come lift us on your pinions and take us home. And Father, for anyone who right now has the daring of rebellion in the heart, I pray that will be washed away by the dew of your word. I pray the truth of your character, your nature will come, a recognition of who you really are. And in that, I pray for salvation for those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>